If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. I firmly believe in experiences and I believe in those voices that might spew hate or discriminate. It's because they're not lucky enough to know someone fabulous like myself in their life. And for them to have that level of hate, they, they truly don't know a member of my community because we are proud of who we are and we take pride in the work we do and the relationships we build. I'm Holly Corbett, Director of Content at Consciously Unbiased. June, as you know, is Pride Month. A catalyst for the LGBTQIA movement happened on June 28, 1969, when a clash between patrons of a gay bar in New York and the police led to the Stonewall riots. This ignited protests around the country in the push for equal rights. Today in 2020, protests are sweeping the country sparked by the death of George Floyd and others with the acceleration of the Black Lives Matters movement. Today, you'll hear from a number of voices on what the pride movement means to them and why we must continue to fight for equality for all. The stories you'll hear include a white gay boomer and how he benefited from white privilege by not coming out until later in life, a Brooklyn-raised Costa Rican immigrant and LGBTQIA educator on why there are so many letters, a Black gay non-binary Broadway actor on how we can all be activists, a millennial on leaving his dream job after speaking out for a transgendered employee. But first, we'll hear from the mother of two gay sons on her hopes for their future. Here is her story. I'm Dawn McCartney. I'm the vice president of the CWS Council with SIA. I will say there is a little part of me that feels that it's kind of a shame that we have to have either months or days or some sort of structured times for us to recognize groups or causes. I think with that, it tells me that we're not where we need to be yet. So I think of even some of the other, you know, months that we have, Black History Month and Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Don't get me wrong. I think they've done phenomenal things. But I do hope for a day when we no longer have to have months called out or days called out and that it's just a part of who we are and it's a part of what we believe. One of the reasons why this is so important to me, um, I do have one of my sons who... Both of my children are, both of my sons are older and they have their careers and, and all of that. But I will say one of the organizations that my son worked at was absolutely, um, unfortunately, experienced having um, a boss who was not comfortable with the fact that he was gay. And so seeing what he was put through, some of the conversations, the way that he was, um, and, and I guess the way that I could, I the way that I justify that it wasn't just my son's performance is, you know, I look at where he is now, same company, a different group is doing phenomenal, you know, got promoted and, and has a great end year end review. Prior to that with the other department, it was constantly being called out in front of people, constantly being told not doing the right things constantly being excluded. And so I, I think of things like that. And, and those are the areas where, you know, as a mom, you, 
I provide them with guidance, support, love, um, hopefully some insight as well as, you know, ways to possibly handle things internally at an organization. But, you know, that's probably one of the hardest things that I had to see was seeing my son being, I, I say the word called out, but absolutely being challenged for who he was, you know, as a mom, whatever they are, whoever they are, love them no matter what. It's that idea of what about the others around me? So I remember my fear, you know, kind of fear, but it was angst of my mom and my dad, older individuals raised in a very different time, you know, certain thought processes, you know, very Catholic religion upbringing. And I remember um, my, it was probably a fear of what would my, what are my mom and dad going to think? And I remember we told my mom, she was like, love my grandkids no matter what. And in my mind, I thought my dad had been very ill. He was, he was dying. And I thought, I don't need to inflict this upon him. Let him leave this world without this one. I don't want him to change the way he thinks about his grandsons, but two, not a worry he needs to have. And I remember at one point I was talking to him and he asked me about my son and his partner, but he said, you know, hey, what about by name? Where is he? And I said, you know, he moved out. They're not together. And he said, how's he handling it? Is he dating anyone new? So we were, and I kind of, and I stopped and I went, what do you mean? And he looked at me and he goes, really? Did you really think I didn't know? And he goes, he's my number one grandson. Wouldn't change a thing about it. Aww. And I thought, sad for me that I didn't give my dad the credit that he would have been accepting you know, so even that part of it, it's the idea of keeping in your mind of, you know, don't assume you know how people are going to react because some people may surprise you. And then I think it's the opposite. Some that you think, oh, they'll be fine with it. Completely different, you know, feedback or approach or response. So what is your hope for your sons in the future? I want them to be accepted for who they are, you know, and I want them to feel like they belong. You know, the idea of belonging and being accepted and not feeling like you're being rejected or judged. I think that would probably be the biggest thing I have, but it's not only in the workplace. You know, I think about that in life in general, when someone meets somebody. And as I said, you know, I, I don't want, especially there were times, you know, when my son and his partner, I remember when they first found out and I had to introduce them to the family, you know, I would be lying to you if I didn't say there was a little bit of pause or hesitation of what are people going to think? Now I will tell you I'm blessed my family has embraced my sons, their partners, lives, you know, all of that. But it's the idea of that's family. I want the same to be for anyone they meet. And it's unfortunate. Our world's not there yet. And so I do say, you know, again, going to the mom and me, I do worry. I, I, and it's an unfortunate worry that I have, but I always tell my sons, you know, you go out, you do things, you meet people. There's always this extra guard that you have to have. You know, I look at it holistically. There's a lot of things I hope. One is that kids always have someone to go to and speak to, that they find a, you know, a voice, someone who will listen to them and not judge them. And then I, I do hope that my, my, you know, my kids are always accepted and that they're heard and that, you know, it's for who they are and not for who they love. Next, we spoke to Mark Reyna about why he thinks the LGBTQIA community and other marginalized groups brings more value and humanity to the workplace. 
Hi, my name is Mark Reyna. By day, I am a change management consultant at PwC and by night founder and blogger at Ingrativation, which uh, it's where I share stories of inspiration, gratitude, and motivation, people in the workplace and in real life. I do believe, you know, the pride movement, the black civil rights movement, it's, it's our fight to be recognized as humans in the workplace. And it's, you know, despite our skin tone, it's despite winning this melanin lottery, let me just say that, um, it's despite being remarkably fabulous and having this sexual orientation or this sexual identity that's different from yours and knowing that we are no less, I think, you know, on the opposite, we are more. You know, I would say these communities represent, we are more in value, we're more in culture, we're more in perspective and love and passion and vision, um, and we're more human. And ultimately, together, we're more in numbers. And that was one thing I wanted to express, um, that you know, we have a lot more in common than difference. It's important to be more human to understand the obstacles that others who don't look like you go through. And not until you actually are willing to say, I need to listen. I need to just be there for someone else to hear and understand them unpack their experiences, how it relates to now, for me to be able to understand and relate, where can I plug in and how can I help this effort? And for me, whenever I say more human, I mean that we're going to work, we're going to the office. I'm trying to put on my mask, deep voice, but you know what? It's not going any lower than it is right now. And trust me, I have been told several times when you start talking, your purse falls out of your mouth. And I'm like, Aww. yeah, that's my identity. And you know what? I, I completely embrace that. But more human is whenever you are faced with different, you know, challenges, whether it's your gender, your sexual orientation, the color of your skin, your disability, whatever it is, you're having to constantly battle to prove that you're more. And I feel over time, we've, you know, mastered imposter syndrome, or, you know, you are a woman coming to the table and you have to prove that you are tougher just because, you know, all of the men at the table, um, you know, are going to question that toughness. And so it's, it's really knowing that you have these superpowers and it's not something that's making you less because you're able to learn and play off those perspectives. You're actually bringing more to the table. You have more culture in you. You have more um, human in you because you're understanding what those people expect from you. You're still able to collaborate and work with them and get a job, you know, done the right way, you know, efficiently and be a badass. Uh, but you do bring so much more to the table at work um, whenever you are, you know, trying to balance, you know, multiple roles like that. You know, when you can put a face to someone and you know their heart, then I think that's where empathy comes from. And that's where you start to break down. Like you start to question biases that you may have. And mm -hmm dismantle them and i think it takes really knowing other people and that comes through storytelling and so i also wanted to bring back to code switching if you're cold if you're code switching at work then it's like you can't really see another person because they have to be forced to fit into this structure that isn't who they are and so that really hurts all of us and it only perpetuates 
inequality. And so I think going back to like personal stories, is there, was there a time in the workplace? And we've all had this, but I mean, for you specifically, was there a turning point moment for you in the workplace where you just didn't feel like you belonged? And then you, you realized that the effort that it took to code switch was something that you just couldn't do anymore. And like, how did you overcome that? Early on in my career, um, and kind of just to reiterate, I've been fortunate enough to have been out all my life and I had support from my family um, who really were, you know, it was new to them. It was new for them how and for myself, but they really were focused on, you know, putting my needs first and loving me and, you know, the support I needed, it was there. Um, not a lot of members of the community have had that same you know, um, opportunity and, and support. And so early in my career after college, I started at this role in Houston. And I mean, at that time, it was my dream role. It was, um, you know, doing uh, learning public relations for, you know, a large company. And I, I loved it. And I interviewed twice with, you know, the same panel. It was great. The team I was going to work with and week one came around and it was it was completely different it was um my manager at the time made several comments about one of her peers you know being transsexual and making jokes and talking about you know um you know her appearance and it really shook me to the core because i was right out of college, so excited. Like, this is my big break. I'm gonna stay here forever and grow in this company. And to have someone in power in a management position that was really just being nasty. Um, I knew that uh, when I, I left for lunch one day and it was, it was about two months into this role, I was like, I'm, I can't return. Like, this, I'm here for a reason and I'm going to pick what I learned, you know, from this opportunity. However, I don't need to stay here. Um, because in the long run, you know, I'm doing myself an injustice if I don't speak up against it or at least speak out of what I heard, because you know what I'm leaving. I'm not going to, you know, think about this person tomorrow or the day after, but I'm going to remember what I learned in this experience. And what I learned is that I needed to say something. So, you know, I did raise the issue um, to, you know, two levels above. And I was like, I just want to be clear. This isn't the culture and environment that I signed up for. This is what you have in front of you. And it was a very cold response, whether they were wanting to say, at the end of the day, we're going to, you know, cover ourselves legally or whatever the case was. And I knew, uh, I had done whatever was in my power and opportunity to do to make sure that I see you. I'm putting a spotlight on this hate in this office. And that's also why I'm leaving um, and have no interest to stay. Or, um, and it, it was sad, but it was a learning lesson because I realized there will be a lot of times in my life where there's someone in power that's making, you know, you know, decision-making calls that isn't going to think the way I do or agree with me. However, I firmly believe in experiences and I believe in those voices that might 
spew hate or discriminate, it's because they're not lucky enough to know someone fabulous like myself in their life. And for them to have that level of hate, they, they truly don't know a member of my community because we, we are proud of who we are and we take pride in the work we do and the relationships we build. So it's, it's those um, limited experiences for some small-minded people um, that hopefully, you know, is what I focus to change and help. And I, I write my stories and my blogs hoping that I just need one viewer to see this that can relate, that can feel inspired, or that can learn, you know, hey, I don't know who he is or anybody gay, but I just listened to what he had to say about, you know, emotional intelligence. And I kind of now have a different, you know, perspective. I, I feel like it's so hard because sometimes people um, will say, my voice doesn't matter. I'm just one person. I'm just one vote. I'm, you know, no one's really, you know, the spotlight is not on me. So I don't need to, you know, worry about being in the fire. Um, and it was actually two weeks ago, I was talking uh, with a friend and his partner, and I'm always welcoming uh, conversations, tough conversations, people that oppose, whatever the case is. And um, <laughs> he told me, you know, Mark, um, at the end of the day, it's billionaires that make the decisions. So, you know, your blog is great, but your blog isn't going to do anything. It's not going to change you know the election it's not going to change people's perception it's not going to change racism and um i it's funny because my only reaction was i smiled and i was like i completely disagree with you because i don't i'm not putting a blog and i'm not putting a story out in the world to spar up against large corporations or billionaires or even um you know educational institutions like i am putting my message out there to connect to one person. Like I'm looking at the views, I'm not looking at the likes. I'm making sure that if my message can spread further than me keeping those thoughts and those stories to myself, then I'm hopefully encouraging other people to speak up and to inspire others. Um, and really it's uh, what I started to, to just refer to as like contagious vulnerability. So it's here I am, I will, pour myself and my experience open um, for the small chance that I'm able to relate to something you've gone through or something you are going through and encourage you uh, to be strong, to speak up, and then maybe just to pay it forward. It's important for us to continue this, this uh, conversation around belonging because there's so many allies out there and there's so many people who do care. And just because today there is a you know, social injustice and the person doesn't look like you, um, we know that tomorrow it could. And the day after that, it'll look and sound like someone else. Next up is Annie Brown, a lead trainer at America Works on why she thinks things are changing for the better. I am Annie Brown. I am a Brooklyn-raised, Costa Rican-born immigrant. I um, have always from day one been me and only me. Um, I'm going to be honest in that when it comes to belonging, I have been fortunate to not have ever not be me. 
I've always, my mother said from the time I was little, she knew who I was. And I've never had a fear or reason to not be me. And I, I, I take pride in that, but I also feel empathy and sympathy for people who can't. So belonging, um, I, I belong to a great group of wonderful, lovely people who just want to love each other without any biases. And I just think it's a shame that Unfortunately, we live in a world where people do judge us based on that. And what are some ways that you think employers can take steps to make that happen, to create that sense of belonging with their employees? A conversation. I, I get my personal opinion is that it's, it's coming from people being uncomfortable. Yes, we're all uncomfortable at a lot of times, right? But what will help is if we just have an open, honest discussion. No one likes to feel uncomfortable. So if, if we're having a conversation and I, I know that you are uncomfortable mm. and I want to have the conversation with you, I'm going to try to make it as comfortable as possible as I can to keep the dialogue going. So at least try and make an effort to have a conversation, mm. right? I, I don't, I'm not saying you have to agree with me. Just listen to me. I have a voice just like you have a voice. And all I'm saying is my voice matters. Mm. Everybody's voice matters. How do you think that the Pride movement and the Black Lives Matter movement intersect? Well, if you saw Brooklyn yesterday, I think they called it 15,000 people at the Brooklyn Museum yesterday. Mm. That in and of itself says a lot. So one of the things I talk about a lot is how we label people, right? So labeling is important. Um, Just how someone addresses you in and of itself says a lot about you as a person so just taking the time to one at least if i think if people had the definition of these vocabulary words they would understand a little bit better but you have you may have what you heard growing up on the street what your friends and family said what you read off the internet but if you actually sat down and went through you know the umbrella and kind of went through the different uh words in the vocabulary and what they mean, I think it, it brings a brighter understanding. You guys have all these letters, LGBTQIA plus LMNOPQ. And I said, I understand. I, I understand. I understand where you're coming from. It is a bit, it's, it could be overwhelming. Sometimes I get confused, right? But the thing is, when I don't know something, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I'd rather tell you, I don't know, than give you the wrong information. So don't think I have all the answers because I don't. I have to sometimes go back and go, wait. Okay, hold, I'll be right back. Let me go look for it and then, right? And so I can see where if you grew up thinking one thing, it's supposed to be normal, right? Normal to them is why are there all these alphabets and why would you need all these alphabets, mm. right? And, and so, yeah, you have to teach people that. See, when you grew up and you were a kid, you didn't, there was no one you said, oh, I don't like that person, right? You didn't, no kid came out and was like, oh, I don't like, kids love, what? kids, I tell people all the time, I'm on the train with my godson, and he's five, and he's just sitting on the train, and there's another little kid over there, he doesn't know him from a hole in a wall, he just <laughs> go play. Yeah. See, that's it, all he sees is another kid for me to play with. They don't care about nothing else. It's us mm-hmm. who've taught them, right? And and that's why it's like, no, he, you have a toy and I want to play. Mm-hmm. Let's play. 
The next voice is John Dyers, who spoke about how addressing the T in the LGBTQIA is part of a movement that he believes is in its infancy and equates the current Trans Lives Matter movement to the rise in gay and lesbian awareness in the 60s and 70s. My name is John Dyer, and my company is called Netra Consulting. That's, that stands for Non-Employee Talent Retention and Acquisition. I grew up um, in Spokane, Washington, um, and it was a great place to be from, don't get me wrong, but you know, I grew up um, in, um, in, a, in, a, in a, going to schools where Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, and being six foot four and 220 pounds by the time I was 12 or 13, everybody pretty much had this preconceived notion that I was going to be a football player or I was going to be a basketball player. When the reality really was, I wanted to date a football player or a basketball player. And, you know, these, this is the 1960s and 70s in Spokane, Washington. So I kind of knew very early on in my life that if I lied about certain things, like I didn't want to really, what I really wanted to do was like maybe brush my sister's hair, but really maybe my dad wanted me to go out and work uh, in the yard with some hammers and saws and, you know, create things. I didn't want to do that. My parents kind of knew right away that there was just something a little bit different about me. So right away, I realized that if I, if I kind of didn't really tell the truth about who I was and feigned interest in things that weren't really interesting to me, uh, you know, that, that, that privilege of being able to do that as, a, as a, a gay closeted person got me into a lot more opportunities than maybe I would have otherwise. So I learned very early on that if I wanted to be included, I had to really live an, uh, an authentic life. I couldn't really be honest about who I was. So inclusion for me was really just a word. It really didn't, it didn't feel real for me. Um, and it wasn't until I got into the work world in my early 30s where I started having the good fortune of working for companies like Microsoft and Amazon who, who completely just don't care about certain things uh, like that, what your sexuality is or your gender or your ethnic heritage. You know, we're just, we're, we, you're going to work like crazy, but we don't care about any of that stuff. And that was my first real experience to just being completely out and feeling comfortable and included in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So many people in, in, in the LGBTQ world have a really hard time going into work and not putting on their so-called work face, you know, not really divulging about who they are or if they're at the water cooler that morning, or I guess nowadays we don't call it the water cooler, we're at the, um, at the barista <laughs> getting our, our coffee. It's hard to really be authentic about what you did over the weekend with your same-sex husband or your same-sex wife or, or whatever, you know, I mean, it, it, so, so when I walk into work, um, I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. So it sounds like, I mean, that it sounds like there was, um, it took some time for you to get there. As a child, of course, you um, were conforming to these traditional gender norms of masculinity out of expectation of your parents or the Catholic church or, or your community. 
Um, and you saw as a white male that that came with certain privileges. So mm. what happened? What was a turning point moment for you where you said, I, I just can't do this anymore, despite the privilege, I need to be who I am. I need to be my authentic self. What, what was your decision to, to come out and, and how did that impact you in the workplace? Well, I mean, you, you, you know, you deal with a, a certain amount of, um, you, you, you don't really uh, become an individualized adult when you're constant, constantly compartmentalizing yourself, depending on who you're talking to or where you're at. You know, for instance, in an interview, I remember my interview at Microsoft telling the recruiter after she, she gave me the offer, I said, oh, I can't wait to tell my girlfriend. What a, what a laugh that was. But I, I had to tell her right then and there that I was, you know, I was straight. <laughs> I, I just felt the need to do that, even though it was a total lie. I mean, I, I think what, you know, I had to learn to do was just realize you have to be your authentic self at work. And sometimes that means being truthful and honest. And not everybody likes that in the workplace. It's still to this day in some cultures, it's, it's not really welcomed or with, with open arms like it should be. It's, it's very uncomfortable for some people. And it's interesting right now, ah, the boomer generation, and I'm a boomer, right? So I can talk to my fellow boomers, but we feel so th th there are some people in my community, and not necessarily in the LGBTQ, but like the heterosexual community that feel like things are being taken away. They're being discriminated against because there's all this extra awareness about um, ensuring opportunities are being made available to everyone. Black Lives Matter is, is about institutionalized racism. You know, it's, it's not about giving special rights. It's, it's about, you know, bringing back, you know, the, 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 the notion that um, there's equity that needs to be dealt with here. And that's why people are making, you know, extra efforts to when they post jobs to go out there and really reach out to uh, different communities. But I think what happened for me is I just got tired of trying to figure out, okay, I'm in front of this group. I have to talk, I have to talk about this, or if I'm in front of that group, I mean, you know, it was just the whole notion that I really wasn't becoming uh, a healthy individualized adult by constantly having to figure out, you know, what, what story I'm supposed to make up here to, to keep this group uh, happy, right? Right, right. And I mean, you said in another podcast that it saves a lot of psychiatry bills to be who you are. Why, what was your journey to self-acceptance? Because I think it must take a lot of energy to monitor what you can share, what you shouldn't share. And I mean, to some level, we all do that in the workplace. There are just certain aspects of ourself um, that I think everybody may be holding back. But for myself as a white woman, I, it, I don't even second guess, as a heterosexual white woman, I don't even second guess whether to talk about you know, my partner or not. So what, how does that energy of feeling like you have to hold part of yourself back impact your performance in the workplace? Uh, you know, I, I think what's what's interesting here is that uh, the arrested development that I had going on was going well into my 20s and early 30s, because again, I wasn't really um, developing as, 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 an, 
as an adult, you know? And so I, I couldn't bring forth what, what was within me. Living my truth was not an option. So when I started going into more of these professional uh, worlds, um, I didn't have to hide. And, and so, you know, the, the whole notion of self-acceptance, self-love, and living your truth, because, you know, the truth is really pure and ever simple, according to Oscar Wilde, right? So I think my coming out in my late 20s, early 30s, a lot of it was, was, um, was interrupted by the whole HIV AIDS um, crisis. I mean, I just, you know, there was so much misinformation about that. And so many of us, you know, just kind of stayed in the closet or didn't come out for a long time because we were very terrified of what, what this was all about. And so that was going on in, in my late 20s, early 30s. And I remember coming to Seattle thinking, you know, I, I, I left Spokane um, mid to late 20s, I think somewhere around there. And I remember coming to Seattle thinking, you know, I'm going to be free. But the whole advent of the AIDS and, and HIV crisis kind of prevented that. But coming into companies, working for a company like Microsoft, where I felt truly like it just didn't matter. Going to my first company meeting and somebody was telling me that, oh, the person that's sitting on the other side of Bill G, uh, he's a gay person, the couple that's um, behind him and back is a, is a lesbian couple. I mean, I, it was, to me, it just, it just didn't make sense anymore. It was like, you don't have to worry about these things. So um, I think coming into the high tech world, which I feel really fosters inclusivity, some companies more so than others, I'm not gonna say it just happens just in high tech, but in high tech and software, um, it just didn't matter. And I was extremely fortunate to be able to go into that culture in uh, the early 90s. And ever since then, it's just, it's never been a matter of who you are um, anymore. But I will tell you, there are certain companies, there are certain industries that I think let you celebrate more so than others, given just their own corporate cultures. I'm really concerned for um, the transgender community because um, I have a dear friend. I met her when she was a he and she's a she now. And one of the things I've had to really learn is using proper pronouns. And I remember some one time thinking, gosh, this is so overwhelming for me to remember the right pronoun. And then I thought to myself, well, think about what she has gone through in her life, right? One of the things I have done since, especially since I got married to my husband uh, almost six years ago, is that I don't refer to him as anybody but my husband. Mm. And so sometimes at work when people don't know me or we're talking about our families or whatever, and I'll say, well, this, this is what my husband and I do. And it's interesting how people pivot. They'll turn their head, they'll look at you, and they'll be kind of surprised. And, and, um, and, and it's just interesting, just little things like that, being open at work um, and saying things like that, it's, it's fascinating. Um, that, that once people see that others are being so open and honest about who they are at work, it's like, wait a minute, if he can talk about that kind of stuff, why, why can I not talk about stuff like that? You know, I mean, it, it's just, just simple little things like that that, um, that, that that start a conversation. Yeah, and I think that, that just there is power in owning who you are, right? And, and by you owning who you are, it, it gives other people permission to also own who they are. Um, and sets the stage for others to share as well. Um, well, you know, being in the, in the closet in the workplace gives people power over you because then they speculate about mm. who you are. 
You give them power by not living your authentic, honest self at work. And, and so therefore, if people, people don't have a chance to talk or gossip because you've set the, the record straight, yep, my husband and I, I'm getting, you know, you, you, they've lost that power over you. And unfortunately, um, so many people don't realize that when they come to work and they, they, they put on their closet face and their closet identity, you're, you're really giving them so much more power over you. It's just, it's owning, owning that in the work, the workplace is super important. The last person we spoke with is Dimitri Joseph Moise, the son of Haitian born immigrants and a Broadway actor and activist. Dimitri is co-founder of Claim Our Space, a coalition with the goal to save Black lives. You can find out more in the show notes. My name is Dimitri Joseph Moise. I'm an actor, award-winning editor, and activist. As I saw my career take shape as an actor, I decided to use that as an opportunity to use my platform and speak up for issues and things that I, I was really passionate about. I'm, I'm so proud of my heritage as a Haitian person, being first generation born. I'm so proud to be a non-binary gay man. Uh, I'm proud to be a black American. I have a lot of intersections and I've always been very, very uh, proud to stand up for my communities. Um, I never really understood why we were always so shut out because I, like I said, I take so much pride in, in my culture and in, and in the things that I, I find important and in my own communities. I think to me, belonging, um, you know, there's that famous phrase you say in diversity and inclusion workshops, like, you know, um, diversity is being asked to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. Like, <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that to me is definitely a version of belonging, but Something that I've learned and realized as I look back in my work is that I've had to forge my own path. Um, as an actor even, I, I've been stigmatized for the way I look and for my femininity as a man, um, for the color of my skin. Um, you know, I had a really difficult coming out process. Um, my HIV diagnosis was definitely not easy. And somehow I found a way to forge my own path and create that sense of belonging for myself. Um, so I think that belonging, of course, is being asked to dance at the party, but what happens when no one is asking you to dance? What do you do then? Um, and I think that's why I felt so emboldened to forge my own path and make that space for myself so that you couldn't tell me that I, I didn't belong, you know? Um, so I think that's what, I think that's what belonging means to me. There's never been a day in my adulthood where I have not looked around to see if anyone was watching me in a store because of how often I get followed in stores, even in my own neighborhood in Queens. That it, it, I was followed in, in my local pharmacy literally the Sunday before George Floyd's murder. And, and, and it was just like, it, it was, it was, I could not believe it, you know, in my own neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, I, remember, I remember in college, um, I had, I had this amazing night with, I was an RA in college and me and, the, <laughs> and a classmate, a fellow RA were coming home from a gay bar and we were like living our lives. We had a great night around the corner from our dorm and down the street, I hear, get the hell out of here, you nigger. Just out of, no, like, out of nowhere. <laughs> at, at NYU? Yeah, in New York City, downtown, when we were around the corner from getting to our dorm. 
And my friend who was a person of Asian descent was, you know, immediately was like, started to try and go after this guy. And I had to stop him and say, please, please don't. Because for me as a black person, I don't know what that person's going to do to me or try to do to me. And um, that's what my experience is like. And it's, it's every day. Um, it's also when I'm driving and I see a cop car in front of me, I slow down so that I don't pass the cop car because I don't want to get pulled over for no reason. Um, it's like, it's, it's that, you know? Um, yeah, that's what it's like. And something I like to say is, you know, we think that by giving, by giving rights and liberties to other people that somehow something is being taken away from us. But in reality, if you think about making space for the most marginalized among us, creating laws that protect the most marginalized among us, it actually creates more space for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. No. And I, I just think that that is something that I, I want us as Americans, as human beings to really, as employers to really think about when you make space for the ones who are the most dejected, the ones who are left out, if you make space for them, it's going to, it's going to involve everyone. It's going to make space for everyone. And I think if you, if we really lean into that and understand that, um, we can start to see some real shifts and um, understand that yes, all lives matter, but all lives can't matter until black lives matter, mm -hmm. until black trans lives matter. We're seeing black trans people dying at disproportionate rates. And we can't say that all lives matter because clearly there are certain lives that don't. Um, and until those lives do, you know, um, we have to keep working. You can learn more about our amazing guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on iTunes and Spotify. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic that you'd really want to hear about or a guest that you'd love to see on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias. <laughs>